The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? Just before Christmas, it was reported that the billionaire Jack Ma had moved to Tokyo after getting into trouble with the Chinese authorities. If that's still true, he would be one of several well-known Chinese who seem to have made Japan their home after runnings with Beijing. In so doing, they're following in the footsteps of those who came over a century ago, other Chinese exiles who hold out in Japan because of a hostile political environment back home. This episode is all about how important it was that Japan served as a safe haven for these exiles, both reformers and revolutionaries at the turn of the 20th century, and just how much that would later contribute to the establishment of a Chinese national identity and even the creation of the Chinese Republic itself. It turns out that Japan was not only an aggressor against modern China, but an inspiration for it. On this episode, I'm joined by Professor Rana Mitter from the University of Oxford and Bill Hayton, a journalist and author of The Invention of China. We go through a lot of history, so in the description to this episode, there's a short timeline of the major events that we talk about. Bill, Rana, welcome to Chinese Whispers. Now, unusually for this podcast, I wondered if we can start with a bit of Japanese history. Uh, Rana, in the late 19th century in Japan, the country went through something called the Meiji Restoration. Can you tell us what it was and how it changed the country? Absolutely, Cindy, and great to be back on the podcast. So the late 19th century is a time of rapid change for Japan. And I would say that probably there's been no rival in terms of the speed and extent to which Japan changed as a society during a very small number of years, really a couple of decades. The only real comparison is the changes, I think, that happened in China during the 1980s up to the early 2000s, when you also have rapid economic, social and political change. So in some ways, a century earlier in Japan is where the precedent lies. During the 1850s, Japan had come into contact with the Western world in unexpected and unwelcome ways. It's worth remembering that for basically about 250 years, even slightly more than that, up to that point, from the very early 17th century up to the mid-19th century, Japan was relatively isolated from the wider world and even for the rest of Asia. It wasn't a completely isolated hermit kingdom the way that sometimes it's been characterized. In fact, there was quite a bit of interaction with the Netherlands, for instance, the Dutch were big traders at that time, and also with the Chinese. But it is true that some of the biggest Western imperial countries, Britain, France, didn't have much of a footprint in Japan. And by the 1850s, you see approaches both from the Russians and from the Americans, Admiral Putyatin and uh, Commodore Perry being the two key people who basically arrived with what Japanese call the Kurofune, the black ships, which essentially were looking to open up Japan to trade and interaction with the outside world, whether they wanted it or not. And... uh, 
the other side of the East China Sea, in other words, the Chinese mainland, was something where the Japanese were aware that there had been a lot of very unhappy encounters, essentially a forcing open of, of China by the Western powers. We'll no doubt touch on that later on. But the relevance for Japan is a lot of Japan's elites, the people who essentially were in charge of the government at that time, looked at this tendency by Western countries to try and open up these new Asian markets and said, this is not something we want to happen to Japan. So essentially, in the space of a very short period of time, after various debates at court, there was essentially a sort of coup. What I mean by that is that some of the aristocratic families of Japan, who had essentially been marginalized in the previous centuries, they hadn't been at the heart of what was known as the Bakufu, the regency, which ruled on behalf of the emperor. They'd been a bit sidelined. They were from places like Choshu and Satsuma, out uh, in the more peripheral parts of Japan. And as often happens with aristocratic elites who know about weapons and don't have that much power, they decided their moment had come. So they essentially used this crisis moment when it looked as if the Western powers, the Americans, the Russians, maybe the British, maybe the French, might be going to try and smash open the doors of Japan, as they had done in China in the Opium Wars just you know, a decade and a half before, and essentially took over the government. They essentially launched what has become known even now as the Meiji Restoration. And this term has two parts, worth very briefly touching on both why they're important. Meiji was the new reign name of the emperor. It's a little bit like the reign, uh, the title that you give to a particular period for a Western monarch. The difference being that each Japanese monarch would get a different title, rather like a Chinese emperor, for their own personal reign. You know, for the House of Windsor, everyone is the Windsor. So you have George the Sixth, you have Elizabeth II, now, of course, Charles the Third, but they're all Windsors. But in this case, if you've got each of them to have their own personalized name as well, that's basically what this means. And Meiji, Chinese characters would be Mingzhu, means bright or brilliant rule. So it's a bit of branding. It's a bit of salesmanship, essentially saying, look, this is a new fantastic period. But the restoration part is also important because what these coup plotters, what these aristocrats are taking over government in Edo, which becomes Tokyo, want to do is to say, oh, no, 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 we're not launching a coup. We're not overthrowing everything that Japan has known for the quarter of a millennium. No, no, we're in fact restoring the rule as it should have been. In other words, the emperor had been kept away from the sources of power, and now he's going to be restored to his throne, and we are going to be carefully just sitting there, you know, in court, making sure that the right thing is, is done. So the major restoration, in other words, is actually by another name a revolution, really. It's sort of a coup in which marginalized aristocrats take over the government of Japan and institute the most significant reforms in terms of modernizing society. They changed Japan within a very short period of time in the 1860s from a country that only a very small number of people are allowed to use weapons and their samurai swords. And instead now it's a big conscript army like in France or in, in, uh, in Germany. Instead of having essentially a, a regency form of government, Japan begins to develop constitutional government, drawing from France, drawing from Germany, a little bit kind of late Wilhelmine Germany is quite an influence, also French law. And you get the Diet, the first Japanese parliament emerges during this time. Instead of being a relatively isolated country, Japan starts to form its own empire. It begins to make incursions into the Asian landmass and also islands around. And we'll, we'll talk more about that, I'm sure. In terms of communications, again, telegraphs, railway lines, roads, all of these are built up in a modern sense. But above all, I think it's fair to say that Japan reorients itself as a modern nation 
state. In other words, it very consciously says we're no longer a pre-modern empire. We're no longer that kind of old-fashioned state that we used to be. We want to be like the French. We want to be like the British. We want to be like the Americans and sit at the top table of international politics and diplomacy. And it's that change in mindset and tactics underpinned by new education system, by constitutional change, by empire, that marks the reason that the Meiji Restoration, even today with you know, a century and a half of distance from it, remains one of the most transformative moments for any modernising country anywhere in the world in history. Okay, so in my mind, the Japan that came before was quite like the neighbouring Qing China, but the one that came after looked more like the modern European powers that were increasingly turning their sights towards Asia. It's quite an incredible achievement for a few decades. How much did those in China look at what was happening in Japan and think, well, we could do this? I mean, Bill, China had lost the opium wars by this point and things clearly weren't going well. Well, you have to remember that until you know, very the end of the 19th century, it was officially illegal for Qing subjects to leave the Qing Empire without official permission. And you only have the first formal embassy from the Qing Empire to Japan in 1877. Of course, there are contacts between them and you know, there's plenty of smuggling and, and trade that's going on. And of course, people are leaving the Qing Empire without permission throughout this period. So there are contacts, but there is this sort of condescension towards Japan. You kind of have these words which you know, are, are deliberately offensive. You know, The Japanese are referred to as dwarves or, or pirates or even dwarf pirates, just to emphasise it. This sort of sense that these kind of people from this faraway you know, island chain that occasionally come and harass our coast. And that was sort of really, I think, we have nothing to learn from Japan, which is why the Sino-Japanese War in 1894-1895 was such a calamity for the self-view of the Qing state because the dwarves came along and whooped the Qing's ass, you might say, in, in modern terms. <laughs> that is quite a moment. But Bill, before we get there, you mentioned that first delegation to China because someone who went in that first delegation was very important for China's lessons learned from Japan, Huang Zunxian. So can you tell us about, because he wasn't like your average Qing diplomat thinking that you couldn't learn from Japan. He, he did think you could learn from he Japan. He did, he did. And interestingly, he was a Hakka. So he was from a group which had a slight sort of, I guess you might call him a sort of minority status within the system. But he went as part of the, the first delegation and he, he absolutely lapped it up. You know, you had Japan after the Meiji Restoration that Rana was talking about there. And he's looking at everything and he's looking in you know, particular at the way that the Japanese loved the ideas of the European social Darwinists. Now, it's kind of hard for us maybe in a more than a century later to understand how important this idea of social Darwinism was in the late 19th century. But Darwin had this idea that there was this competition between individuals for survival. Well, sort of social Darwinism distorted that and turned it into a competition between races and groups for survival. And you had all this racial thinking with this very clunky idea of that there was, you know, there was a white race and a yellow race and a brown and a black and a red race, and they were all fighting one another for survival and, and they had degrees of civilization. But surprisingly, this was extraordinarily influential in Japan, partly because it fitted into these ideas of competition and kind of becoming a modern nation state that, that Rana was, was talking about there. I think it also kind of gave some of the reformers you know, something to aim for and a sense that because there was this struggle against the Europeans and the Americans, that this kind of 
created a kind of way to think about it. But he, Huang Zhengxian, absorbed a lot of these ideas and he tried to alert his superiors back in the, the Qing, let's call it the foreign ministry and others. But frankly, they weren't that interested. And it was only after the big defeat of 1894-1895 that some of his ideas you know, began to sort of filter through back to the homeland. So Rana, let's talk about that defeat at the hands of the dwarf pirates then. I mean, quite a moment... <laughs> Absolutely, because essentially during much of the two decades, uh, let's say the 1870s, 80s, mid-90s, the Qing court, the Qing dynasty, thought it was doing pretty well. It had sent people out to essentially build up the idea of what was called self-strengthening. In other words, the idea that China should be taking ideas, tactics, techniques from many parts of the world, but certainly mostly Western Europe to some extent. North America, some extent Japan as, uh, as well, and use them to essentially strengthen its own institutions of government and also its military, including its navy. And self-strengthening was meant to be in part the idea that overall the culture would remain very much Chinese, but that for practical use there would be the drawing on foreign examples. And when it came to the ultimate confrontation between a rising, much more imperialist-minded Japanese state, the Meiji state that we mentioned by the 1890s, and the Qing dynasty, particularly over the question of Korea, where the Korean peninsula was somewhere where China was not the ruler, but it essentially had a very, very strong influence for centuries, really. And as the Japanese moved for more control, in the Korean Peninsula, the Chinese the dynasty, the Qing dynasty, pushed back to try and prevent them from doing that. And essentially, when the two forces came together, the modernized, industrialized Japanese Navy and the reformed Chinese Navy, which had been thought of as essentially holding its own, as, as you know, undertaking a whole variety of changes that came from learning from Western techniques, including actually from places like the Greenwich Naval um, Shipyards in, in London. In all of these cases, there was a feeling on the Qing side that essentially they should be able to hold their own against the Japanese. And in fact, this turned out not to be remotely the case. Essentially, Japan managed to win an absolutely major victory at this time. It's worth remembering that sometimes this war is referred to not so much as the Sino-Japanese War, but as the Qing-Meiji War, on the grounds that to some extent, it's two sets of elites, one in Beijing, one in Tokyo, essentially fighting through navies on the coast. This isn't the kind of devastating total warfare that you get in the second Sino-Japanese War, World War II, which you know, happens just half a century or so later. But the end result of the Sino-Japanese War is devastating and humiliating for China. First of all, the Chinese court has to send representatives, uh, Li Hongzhang and others, to go to Japan, essentially cap in hand, you might say, to negotiate at uh, Shimonoseki, at the Treaty of Shimonoseki, an agreement which essentially hands over to Japan its first imperial possession proper, and that's the island of Taiwan. So when we think, as we often do, I know in Chinese whispers, uh, Cindy, about the long history as well as the turbulent present of, of Taiwan, it's worth remembering that 1895 is a really important date because as a result of the end of that Sino-Japanese First War, Taiwan was handed over as a formal colony to Japan, in fact, remained so for the next 50 years. And this whole set of events caused a huge crisis of confidence in the Qing court as to whether or not there was any way that they could push back against the likelihood that this sort of humiliation, particularly as Bill was saying, at the hands of a country which 
previously, China hadn't really rated. I mean, in the Qing court, okay, the Qing rulers were themselves actually ethnic Manchus, but they had become in many ways very attuned to Chinese ways over 200 years. And to suddenly find these neighbors from the uh, the East, uh, you can name with these rather insulting terms that you've mentioned, managing to put one over on the country that should have been the elder brother of the region, that was humiliation beyond measure. That's something I want to draw out a little bit more as well, Bill. I mean, is that a particular humiliation? Because, you know, Qing China by this point had suffered defeats already, but it was at the hands of Europeans who were these strange people coming from overseas, these uh, young guides, uh, foreign devils. But the Japanese, you know that we know the Japanese, but how can they have beaten us? You know, was that a particular, almost, you know, you mentioned pan-Asianism, this kind of Asian humiliation saying like, oh, these people were like us just a few decades ago, and now they're beating us? Yeah, no, I would say that think about the cultural background for a second, which underpins the relationship between China and Japan. Something like the writing system. I mean, kanji, the Japanese term for writing, uh, for characters, is basically hansi, the Chinese um, term uh, transliterated into, into Japanese. And the, the Japanese write, written tradition is very old, but it basically doesn't really get started until you know, more than a, uh, you might say, a couple of thousand years after the Chinese system which is then imported into the islands of Japan. Or ideas such as Confucianism, we think about it actually very much as, of course, a Chinese system, I thought in many ways it is. But actually it's exported to Vietnam, to Korea, and to Japan during that period. And Japanese neo-Confucianism is as much a Chinese-derived system of thinking as indeed is the Chinese equivalent, or indeed systems of Buddhism, which we often think of as very much made in Japan, Zen being the obvious example, it's a Japanese name. It's actually in many ways a system that's imported from China, Chan being um, the system of Buddhism that then is, is, is changed. So in other words, there's a very long tradition of things coming from the Chinese mainland. And in one way or another being, of course, incorporated, adapted, hybridized, you might say, in Japanese culture. But the direction of travel was almost always that way. So the idea that it might go in the opposite direction and that this country, which would be thought of, you know, as very much a smaller, less central part of that world is something that was really deeply humiliating and embarrassing. There's a word actually that's often used by the scholar Joshua Fogel based in Canada, who's a great expert on both China and Japan. And he's written about what he calls the Sinosphere. Again, the term has been used elsewhere, but I think Fogel has really pushed interpretation of that forward. It's a good way to think about what gets shattered at that point. The point being that not that everything is ruled or controlled by China, like a, a you know a traditional empire in that area, but rather the Chinese influence in terms of thought, in terms of political systems, in terms of norms and ethics, was so dominant in that part of East, Southeast, and Northeast Asia that anyone upsetting that order was much, much more significant than might have been the case if essentially a Chinese dynasty rose or fell, or even as in the case of the Qing, was taken over by a different ethnic grouping. This was a different order of who actually gets to write the rules and the norms. And I think that's why the Chinese found it so difficult to deal with. And of course, the reversal of the direction of that influence is what happens in the following decades and what we're here to talk about today. So the first impact then, I think we can say, is that the Sino-Japanese War serves as some kind of catalyst for soul-searching in China. I mean, Bill, is it fair to categorise the reactions to defeat in the war as reformers who want to constitutionalise the Qing, uh, modernise it in the model of the Meiji Restoration, and then revolutionaries, on the other hand, who say, burn the whole lot down, we'll start again. <laughs> I, 
Yeah, I guess that's the net effect. I mean, you already have ideas of reform circulating around the time. You know, Rana's mentioned that the self-strengthening movement, you know, that was sort of the idea of using foreign technology, but basically maintaining the inner core, if you like, as of, you know, kind of maintain our Chineseness. And but then you had people trying to modernize the imperial system, but largely keep it. So you have have a small period between the defeat in 1895 and the Treaty of Shimonoseki that, that Rana was talking about and the summer of 1898 when the reformists are there and they're full of ideas and they eventually they get to the emperor and they say, let's completely remodel this state. Let's have a Western-style education system. Let's have civil service ministries that reflect the needs of the time, etc., etc." And the emperor is persuaded and says, yes, let's do this. And then 100 days later, hence the term, the 100 days reforms, there's a coup against him, which is organized by his aunt, the Empress Susha. And the emperor gets put into house arrest. Six, I think it is, of these reformers get executed. Everybody else flees the country or goes back to their, you know, their their rural homes and hides. But people like Liang Chichao and Kang Youwei, who are the leading reformers, they get out of the country. And Liang Chichao in particular takes up residence in, in Yokohama. Kang Youwei actually, you know, seems to swan around the British Empire. He pops up in Malaya and India and Canada and other kinds of places. And I think the Brits actually quite want to encourage him because he's a sort of reformist. But anyway, he has all kinds of crazy ideas, many of which we don't actually learn about until after he dies. But then, so from 1898, Japan becomes this place of refuge where reformers are you know, safe and they can and they encounter all these kind of ideas that Rana was talking about, which are coming through Japanese. So an awful lot of, for example, thinking about nationalism and language and militaries and state building and democracy is translated into Japanese. And of course, the Chinese exiles can read a lot of this stuff because they can read much of the stuff that it's written in. And so you get this uh, thing called brush talk, where although people can't actually speak to each other, they can write down characters which the other side can understand. And so there's a a degree of learning there. And then, of course, people get more familiar with the language. But I think what was particularly fascinating about that episode as well is that Huang Zunxian, who we talked about as one of these early diplomats to go to Tokyo, he seemed to have a direct line to the Emperor Guangxu, his treatise on Japan was read by the emperor who wanted to reform. So that directly was a major influence on the reform. Absolutely. Yeah. So they were looking for ideas and looking at kind of how is it that these other countries that seem so small have become so powerful and are able to, you know, beat us in a war or to grab Hong Kong or or whatever it is. And so various people propose reasons for it. It's because they have reformed their language. It's because they have learned from science and And so they try and this idea of sort of, you know, preserving the essence while adopting the technology. That's, I think, the idea uh, behind these 100-day reforms in, in, in 1898. But then you get a few people in Hawaii, and I think that location is, is, in, is important and interesting. You know, sort of, so Sun Yat-sen, as he becomes, is educated by Anglicans in Hawaii, and he's looking back at his homeland and seeing it being defeated by Japan. And he comes to the conclusion that there's no point trying to reform this system. It has to be overthrown. And so they sit around in this living room in, you know, in Honolulu and they swear an oath that these 12 people or whatever it is are going to overthrow the Tartars. And they deliberately use an expression that was used by the Ming 
to get rid of the Mongols, you know, kind of several centuries before. And they basically say, we, the Chinese, are going to get rid of these Tartars, these people from Inner Asia. And he's referring to the Manchu. And the, the ruling dynasty of the Qing Empire is ethnically Manchu from what's now northeastern China. And he basically, they agree that the problem is that the Manchus are now controlling China and we have to get rid of them. And so it sort of begins with a very revolutionary and that revolutionary spirit overlaps with a new kind of nationalism which tries to define the difference between say Chinese and Manchu and that becomes a problem in subsequent decades as to you know whether this future China the revolutionary China is going to be a what become you know a Han state or is it going to become a broader state which includes other groups as well so that that reform revolution and that inclusive kind of way of thinking about the future of this land is sort of embedded from the beginning so those are the revolutionaries and, and those debates on nationalism are something that we talked about quite a lot the last time you came on the podcast, Bill. Listeners can find a link to that detailed discussion in the description. Rana? Well, I have two, three things to that. I think that sounds exactly right. One is that in some senses, the question of reform or revolution, which is a question we set quite often as an exam uh, question, actually, in, in university papers on Chinese history. It's a good old chestnut in a sense. Actually, I think is answering my own question, misleading in some ways, because the nature of the reform that's proposed by some of the reformers who want, say, a constitutional monarchy in the late 19th century is such a difference from what even at its most outward looking the Qing dynasty would have expected that that's another form of revolution as well. The other element just to, to throw in there, of course, is that, as I think we're going to talk about, but this is the period, let's say the 1890s into the 1900s and beginning of the 1910s, when Japan really looms very central in the way in which both reformers and revolutionaries think about what's going to happen in China. The irony is that after this horrific defeat in the Sino-Japanese War in 1895, the handing over of Taiwan, this triggers a whole variety of thoughts in the minds of people who want to change things as to not only how can they learn from Japan, but also in some cases when things get politically hot for them, they have to end up in Japan. And ironically, they find themselves in the bosom of the imperialist, which has been oppressing China as a means of trying to work out how to save China through either reform or indeed revolution. Right, yes. And as Bill says, Liang Qixia and other failed reformers end up gathering at Tokyo, but so does Sun Yat-sen uh, and his revolutionaries who end up in Japan and they form something called the Tongmenghui, which is an early iteration of the Kuomintang, the Chinese Nationalist Party. Now, Bill, I liked it in your book when you call this environment a cauldron of subversion. But Rana, I wanted to pick up on something that was mentioned earlier. Why is it that so many of these Western ideas are translated into Japanese and are so easily accessible in that country? The answer basically is the major restoration. In other words, that period in the 1860s, 1870s, when Japan, unlike China at that point, was going full tilt into modernization. And they wanted to read everything. They wanted to study everything. They wanted to get every bit of scrap of information they could from the Western world. So it was deliberate policy. Yeah. So key figures such as one of the great intellectuals at the time, a man called Fukuzawa Yukichi, was an advocate essentially of complete Europeanization. He used this phrase for Japan that Japan should leave Asia and enter Europe, which mm. in a literal sense is obviously ludicrous. But as a metaphorical idea, the idea was that Japan should be thought of as a country that wasn't 
simply part of Asia. Even today, you sometimes hear, particularly to people talk about geopolitics, that Japan is sort of part of the West, really, particularly when people are talking about you know military security. And there's a sort of step back question about, well, how much is that ever really true? But there's a long history to that particular sort of thinking. And in this case, you have basically a very, very significant effort by Japanese intellectuals. The great Cambridge scholar, Carmen Blacker, wrote a book called The Japanese Enlightenment, which was about this whole period when essentially the drawing in of Western thinking and translating and absorbing it became part of the mixture. Although not all of that thinking, as Bill was saying, would necessarily be considered so enlightened now. Figures like Katohiro Yuki, the social Darwinist um, figure of that time, were also part of that kind of thinking that was taken from the West, translated into Japanese, and then absorbed and sent back into China. It also operated, of course, at the most basic linguistic level, because so many terms which have come relevant to modernization, politics, industry, constitutionalism, these are terms which still exist today in China, as, as you will know, you know, xianfa or zhengzhi or whatever. These are almost all terms that were first brought in and used in Japan in the late 19th century, actually as adaptations of older classical Chinese forms, but turned into a modern Japanese form and then re-imported. So there's a kind of you know three-step thing going on here into late Qing China as a means of explaining these ideas. And one of the figures who's central to that, one of the institutions that's central to that, is someone who Bill's mentioned, Liang Qichao, one of the great reformers of this period, a wide-ranging intellectual, one of the most important thinkers anywhere in the world, really, in that period. And he sets up in exile in 1904 in Japan a newspaper called Shubao, which means The Times, basically. And that is a vehicle for political thinking, which, of course, is published in classical Chinese, but in Japan, for all of these students and revolutionaries, people like this Tong Menghui, this Revolutionary League, to read, and of course, either smuggle back copies, or indeed, the other mechanism to get back into China, is that we have to remember there were small imperial enclaves, places like the International Settlement in Shanghai, which didn't have Chinese law operating there. And while it was still dangerous to breathe revolution there. It was easier to go from Japan, say, to Shanghai as Chinese and try and spread a bit of subversion there than it was to go straight into Qing territory. So the kind of variation of jurisdiction, you might say, was another reason that Japanese-influenced Chinese thinking was able to spread back into the mainland of China. And Bill, one of the lessons that the Chinese seem to have learned from Japan when it comes to modernizing the country is this idea of simplifying the script and standardizing the pronunciation, something that later happened in China throughout the 20th century. I had a linguist, Jing Tzu, on the podcast last year, whose book Kingdom of Characters was all about this mission. So tell us about that, because it was a linguistic inspiration too. Yeah, a mission that's still going on a hundred odd years later. And so this idea of how ideas were transmitted from Europe through Japan and then into China. The Japanese looked at Germany and what it had done for language reforms and adopted many of those ideas themselves. So the idea of taking the dialect that was spoken in the capital and making that the standard pronunciation for the whole country so that the whole country could become literate and then advance in scientific, technical, military terms. That was part of the inspiration for when, after the revolution, one of the first things that happens in China in, in 1912, 1913, 
is what's called the conference to standardize the pronunciation. But it's kind of odd because that's the nationalist way of looking at it. That there is a single language called Chinese, which is sort of fragmented into lots of different forms. And all we've got to do now is have a big conference and put it back together and agree how we pronounce everything. But of course, that was a real misunderstanding of how Chinese came to be. I mean, you have all these, in effect, these regional languages which share a written script. And as long as you just write it down, it's the same language. But as soon as you start to speak it, it becomes clear that it's <laughs> these are lots of different languages. But nonetheless, they were kind of inspired by the Japanese to try and have a go at standardizing the language and, and the pronunciation and simplifying the script to make mass literacy possible to enable technological advancement. And it's been amazingly successful because China has come from where it was to where it is now. And if listeners want to find out more about the linguistic revolution, you can listen to that episode with Jing, link in the description. Now, Bill, I wondered if you can tell us about what the Japanese thought of the cauldron of subversion happening under their eyes. I mean, was it a deliberate policy to overthrow the Qing or was it something else? I mean, what I find most interesting about this period is that Japan as a growing imperial power is clearly harbouring territorial ambitions on China, but is also a safe haven for Chinese exiles. Yes, and I think there's probably different points of view within the Japanese system is one thing to, to point out. And I guess because a lot of this is directed outwards, I mean, these people are not attempting to overthrow the Japanese state. So there's a certain amount of kind of let them get on with it to, to some extent. Um, <laughs> and the fact that it's maybe happening in other languages than Japanese. And so the Japanese population themselves are you know, less likely to be infected by this nationalism is one thing. But there are clearly, you've mentioned this, this term pan-Asianism, which starts to emerge as a, a way of sort of Japanese contribution, if you like, to the anti-imperialist movement across Asia. You know, what can Japan do in order to foster this new nationalism and create a sort of you know, a sense of being Asian against the, the whites who are coming in? And, you know, bearing in mind you know, that in, you know, you've just had the Americans defeat the Spanish and take over the, the Philippines. Same thing in Hawaii. You've got the French in Vietnam. You've got the British in Malaya and, and Borneo and India, of course. And so there is this sort of sense that you know Japan can do something to push back against this and to do something for its brothers, if you ever call it that. And so, yes, I think that, and there are parts of the Japanese state that sponsor this and, and are actively reaching out to someone like Sun Yat-sen to kind of sponsor his revolutionary movement as well. So it, it's, a, it's a welcoming place. Could I add a note to that? Because I think it actually speaks to a wider debate that's been going on for quite a while on the question of empire in general. I think we all know it's remained a kind of quite turbulent and controversial subject in many ways. Just to say, first of all, I think there's one practical moment we just should mention briefly that we haven't mentioned yet that I think flips the dial in terms of the influence of Japan and the Western world. That's the Boxer Uprising in 1900. So two years after the 1898 Hundred Days Reform that Bill's mentioned, okay, so the Dowager Empress Tsushi basically stops that dead and you know, some of the revolutionaries are executed, like Tan Tung, others like Liang Qichao, Kang Youwei, they escape to Japan or, or elsewhere. But two years later, essentially there's a failed uprising by peasant revolutionaries in the countryside, which the Qing dynasty, the ruling dynasty, unwisely, as it turns out, gets behind. And it's essentially put down in the end by 20,000 troops, one of the first multinational forces being sent into China, half of which Japanese, 10,000 of those troops are Japanese troops basically sent in to end the Boxer Uprising. And as it turns out, punish 
the Qing dynasty and the Dowager Empress and others very severely for having supported the revolutionaries against the foreign presence. And that actually creates a huge financial crisis for the Qing dynasty because they have to start paying back an indemnity, basically a debt, rather like what was put on uh, Germany just you know, a decade and a half later at the end of, uh, of World War I. And the costs involved with that, together with the realization that the system really was functioning very badly, that forced the reformers, ironically, to take on reforms that had been proposed just a few years earlier, two, you know, four years earlier, in 1898, almost wholesale. And Japan became very, very influential during that time because the kind of reformers who were given favor at court brought in ideas such as constitutional monarchy, the introduction of more elected assemblies, and also most famously the abolition of the traditional examination system for the bureaucracy, which had existed for a thousand years and then was just almost not quite overnight, but very quickly abolished in 1904-1905. So why does that set the stage for a relationship with Japan that changes. Because I think it's during this time that you get the emergence of what would I think be true for probably 30 years after this, past the end of the last emperor into the Republic of China and until World War II when that breaks out between China and Japan. And that's a deep ambivalence on both sides. And this is true, I think, of a lot of empires at this time. Essentially, many Chinese deeply admired what Japan had managed to do in Asia and beyond. They saw Japan as the only Asian state that had been able to push back against Western powers, such as Russia in the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-5. And we say Russo-Japanese War. That war in 1904-5 was fought on Chinese territory in Manchuria, in northeast China. And you know the Japanese won, the Russians lost. And yet, actually, there were a variety of Asian figures in China and elsewhere, people like Nehru in India, who admired the Japanese for what they'd done. There were also opportunities, you know, scholarships that were given, boxer indemnity scholarships, actually, to Chinese students to come and study in Japan during that time. And as we know from the way in which people from colonized countries in the British and French empires uh, also had that experience, on the one hand, they were resentful at their countries being colonized and occupied, but they also found that the opportunity to study in the imperial country was a way to meet other like-minded people, to deepen their knowledge. And the same was true of China and Japan as well. And for many people who were coming from China and desperately wanted to learn about science and technology and so forth, going to Japan became the gateway to do that. Two quick examples. One of China's, if not the greatest modern author of China, Lu Xun, novelist who I think is still read even now by, well, not novelist, but short story writer, you might say, by every school child in, in, in China today. And he started off as a medical student. He had to go to Japan to study medicine, partly because he couldn't afford to do the traditional exams. In the end, he became disillusioned with medicine because he thought the state of China was so bad that it was no point curing people's bodies while their minds were essentially under an imperial mindset. But he certainly looked to Japan as a place to study. One other example, a man who would rule China, Chiang Kai-shek, Zhang Jishu, who would become the generalissimo of China between the 20s and 40s. He got some of his initial training by going to a Japanese military academy. And the idea that Japan was where you went as a young Chinese, if you were nationalistic, if you were proud of your country, and you wanted to learn from the best, because these are the people who managed to put one over on you. Japan played that very ambiguous and in some ways ambivalent role in the minds of many young Chinese. And the same was true the other way around, where many Japanese both admired many individual Chinese, such as Sun Yat-sen's friend Miyazaki Toten, but also had come to rather despise China for allowing itself, as they saw it, 
to be conquered by Western countries such as the British and French. So it was a very complex relationship and remains so for, for decades. And I might broaden that out. And to be a couple of Vietnamese nationalists, Phan Boi Chao, Phan Chu Ching, had a Go East movement trying to encourage young Vietnamese to go to Japan to learn. And they encountered Chinese nationalists there. And you know it, it helped to create a nationalist movement in Vietnam as well. And I was just going to add one more name as well, Zhou Enlai, who would later become the premier of China, you know, right-hand man to Mao Zedong. It does seem, you know, to, to a certain extent when you take off the names, you know, anyone who was anyone in China in the 20th century spent some time in Japan either studying or hiding. Both the founders of the Communist Party. Yeah, absolutely. And it's worth just flashing forward for a moment that even the 21st, Wang Yi, now the Foreign Affairs Council of China, previously the Foreign Minister, is, from all accounts, a pretty fluent Japanese speaker. Even he, as a much later generation of communist thinker, thought that getting to know and understand Japan was a key task for anyone who wanted China to do well. But ultimately, in the long term, we discover that these students, they don't just learn, you know, trigonometry, they learn subversion and democracy and nationalism. And actually, the Qing court have been paying these students to undermine the Qing rule over the subsequent decade. Not the first time it's shot itself in the foot. Um, OK, so we've talked a lot about modernization and the lessons of modernization from Japan. Bill, how exactly did it help foster nationalism, Chinese nationalism? Can you explain that? I guess I'm going to draw most of my remarks about Liang Qichao. I mean, he kind of he seems to tower above, I think, most of the other names in this period. And he's based in Yokohama. And his output is just extraordinary throughout the 1900s. Millions of characters, I guess, in various newspapers. And he more than anybody else, I think, grapples with these ideas about what a a future China is going to look like, kind of arguing about the name of the country, for example. Is it going to include the whole territory of the Qing Empire, or is it going to be a much smaller, kind of like the old Ming Empire, and say goodbye to Tibet and Xinjiang and Manchu and all the rest of it? Is it going to be democratic? What's the role of women? All this kind of stuff, I mean, he's kind of argued about in his paper. And you've got all these other students who are coming to study for, you know, one or two or three years, who are taking part in these debates, and these associations get formed and they split. I mean, it's classic student politics kind of stuff. But they really are. These arguments are live and vivid. Much more meaningful <laughs> than the kind of... <laughs> Indeed. Because they really do think that they are on the cusp of, of creating a new state, a new society, um, which they go back to do in the 1911-1912 revolution. And Sun Yat-sen, sometimes I think his role is slightly overstated. I mean, he organises a whole series of failed uprisings. And it's basically a kind of, it's an army protest about pensions, I think it is in Wuhan in 1911 or something, which kind of actually triggers the actual revolution. And then he kind of, you know, he's a bit of an opportunist and he kind of sweeps in. But the Tong Menghui, the, you know, the Revolutionary Association is formed in 1905, amalgamating some of these more revolutionary minded groups. And I guess it's the ideas as much as the organisations which people like Liang Chao and you know, a whole lot of other people who come together and create this dynamism, I think, which leads to so many of these new national ideas. Can, can I throw one other name there? Because although I think it's fair to say that both the names we've given and the general tenor of the movement tends to be very masculine in its interest, and that overall I think is probably a, a just assessment, it is worth noting that actually the emergence of feminism during this period is also linked to Japan. So I'll give you one name, Chiu Jin, who is one of the most prominent revolutionaries of this period, and she's inspired herself uh, as a sort of anti-Qing activist by some of the Russian female revolutionaries, people like Sofia Pirovskaya, who was 
was involved in the assassination of Tsar Alexander back in the, the 1880s. But Chiu also spends some time in Japan. She goes over there, she learns, you know, she associates with these groups that Bill's been talking about, the revolutionary figures who want to overthrow the dynasty. Eventually, she does go back to China and actually, unfortunately for her, her revolutionary activities were fairly easy to track and the authorities picked her up and she was executed shortly afterwards. But actually, in terms of a trend which we now know in the 20th century becomes much more notable, which is the emergence of a female revolutionary tradition, both nationalist and communist. Someone like Chiu Jin going to Japan and learning from there seems like a forerunner of that idea, both of strong revolutionary commitment and going overseas to be trained and in some ways to be inspired by your vision of what nationalism is going to be. And in the case of Chiu Jin, also with women's roles as a more central part of the revolution than people like Yang Chao and others perhaps were inclined to concentrate on. Mm-hmm. And Rana, just moving ahead then, the Republic of China is formed in 1911, 1912, and people continued to go to Japan hiding out there if they disagreed with the trajectory of the Republic. But what I found less on was how it looked after 1949. So after the communist takeover, was it still a cauldron of, of subversion? Japan is not the major source of subversion by the time you get to the Communist Revolution of 1949, although it's important. The reason it's not is essentially the bitterness, the anger, the horror, the trauma that had come with basically a decade and a half of full-scale war between China and Japan, essentially China's World War II experience between 1937 and 45, meant that it was no longer possible, I think, for most mainstream Chinese, certainly elites, to think of Japan as a sort of ambivalent mentor. I mean, clearly mm. it had been you know, a deeply, deeply traumatizing experience to be part of that. It wasn't completely absent, though. There were people who, as in you know, Vichy France, had collaborated with the Japanese during World War II. One example, actually, is the brother of that great writer I mentioned. I mentioned Liu Xun, who was the, he's remains, as always, the premier modern writer of China. His brother, Zhou Zuren, actually stayed behind in Japanese-occupied Beijing and taught there at the university during the Japanese period. And he wrote many, many essays, actually, which deal with the question of what it is to engage with Japanese culture. But he, along with others, was basically forbidden from having any public role after 1945, when the Japanese had lost. And then there were actually lots and lots of Japanese left at the end of the Second World War. And it took several years for hundreds of thousands of them to be shipped back to the mainland. Many of them were women and children who'd been left behind, actually, by the Japanese army when they retreated. That, of course, didn't do a great deal for Japan's reputation as an Asian actor during that time. But it is worth noting that when you get to the establishment of Mao's China, there are efforts to try and reach out unofficially to interested Japanese groups, not officially because there were no diplomatic relations formally between Japan and China until 1972, in fact. It's really quite late in the day. But there are links through the Japanese Communist Party and other organizations to try and have more informal visits. And in fact, there are visits from people associated with reindustrialization, with a variety of more business and commercial enterprises that have unofficial, but nonetheless important links. And the scholar Amy King at uh, Australian National University has written an extremely interesting book, which deals with some of those sort of semi-official and non-official links during that time. And finally, Rana, your book, China's Good War, is all about how over time the country remembered its Second World War experience differently. Do you think China is ready to remember Japan's contribution to the formation of the Chinese Republic in the way that we've talked about? I mean, certainly not something that I as a school child in China ever learned about. 
Well, at the risk of plugging your show again, Cindy, I think you had an excellent episode maybe a year or so ago, probably still in the archive, about that actually quite significant group of perhaps relatively elite, but still widespread Chinese today, who actually have a lot of respect for Japan and rather admire Japanese culture and enjoy drawing on that culture. And even now you can see that there are things like Japanese manga and actually Japan as a holiday destination, very popular with a lot of middle class Chinese. So the question of hatred versus love is not by any means black and white any more than it was, I would say, back in the late 19th, early 20th century. But having said all that, where is Japan in the minds of of China today? I think it actually plays a much less significant role in Chinese thinking today than was the case a century or so ago. The reason being this, essentially, America is now such a dominant power in terms of the way that China thinks about its role in the world, that everything else is a number two, number three, and number four, or something along those lines. Of course, Europe's important. Of course, Russia's important. Of course, Japan's important in different ways. But so much, it seems to me, of Chinese thinking about its place in the world is about measuring up against America, or doing better than America, or not quite measuring up to America. You know, this is where the competition lies. And the idea of China being in competition with Japan, I think it's just not in that mindset anymore. In terms of the event that you've mentioned, and you kind of mentioned my book, China's Good War, which is basically China's World War II experience, it still very much sits in the minds, not least of people being taught in, in high schools, for instance, about the horrific things that Japan did in China during World War II. But having said all that, one of the points that I would make is that I think in many ways, China's relationship with its own World War II history today is much more about how China thinks about itself and its internal relationships. You know, the fact that, for instance, the old Chiang Kai-shek nationalist capital down in Chongqing, rediscovering its history that wartime period, in a weird sense, that doesn't have that much to do with the Japanese. It's much more about the still unhealed traumas and fissures within Chinese nationalism. You know, what did it mean to be a patriot if you were anti-Japanese, but also anti-communist? Those are much trickier questions to deal with, even in the present day. And it's why I think, in a sense, Japan is more of a sort of framework for China asking questions about itself, rather than the reality of the early 20th century, when Japan really was a powerful imperialist country that meant China's territory a great deal of harm. Today, you know, regardless of the rhetoric you sometimes hear, Japan is a you know settled, stable, liberal democracy that is not, I think, in a position or it has any desire really to cause any waves outside of its own territory. And that just means it's in a different position in the mindsets of everyone in the region and indeed in the minds of China's thinkers about geopolitics as well. Ron Amitter and Bill Hayton, thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.